Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Kimberly Robinson. And I'm Greg Storr. The justices are entering their busy season with a relatively full slate of arguments in both March and April, as well as working to get out those opinions, which there are a lot left to go, aren't there, Greg? Yeah, the justices have decided just six cases so far this term while digging another. Digging means dismissing as improvidently granted. That leaves 52 to be decided by the end of June. By comparison, this time last term, the justices had decided 13 cases out of an eventual 60 for the term, along with a a dig in that term as well. Okay, Greg, so what's going on in the court? They're just... uh... What, going on lots of vacations, going to procrastinate? You know, I didn't learn procrastination until I went to law school. So that's that's probably a big possibility. Oh, wow. I learned it long before then. Um, look, it, it, it seems like every term gets more and more backloaded, where the biggest decisions just don't happen until the very end of June. What we've seen so far this term may have some explanations to it. Uh, of the opinions they put out, only three of them were unanimous. One was 6-3, two were 5-4. to four. Uh, That may uh, be a, a hint that they just don't have that many cases that are going to get resolved unanimously, at least among the ones that were argued already. There are a couple cases that they've heard that have some moving parts to them. The Sackett case, the Clean Water Act case, uh, there's a, a new rule that the Biden administration has put out that probably doesn't have a huge effect on the outcome of that case. But, you know, somebody may be trying to incorporate that into their opinion. The big election case, the Moore versus Harper independent state legislature theory case, that one's got some a lot of moving parts <laughs> in it because of something the North Carolina Supreme Court is doing. Um, and then, you know, to talk about the obvious, there are some really, really big decisions that they have before them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just in the first couple sittings alone, you've got affirmative action, you've got a big Voting Rights Act case, you've got the Clean Water Act case, the Indian Child Welfare Act, you've got a very big separation of powers case, or two of them involving the FTC and the SEC. And so, you know, those are for the most part cases that nobody, you know, expected to be decided by this time and may well not be decided until the very end of the term. Um, You know, ultimately, I think we'll be done by the end of June. It just may be very backloaded, you know, like it has been in past terms. Um, I I referenced the Moore case and explained to us what exactly, or maybe not what exactly, because it's so darn complicated, but give us an overview of what is happening to this case that people have been really kind of animated about because of the potential impact on federal elections. Yeah, this is, uh, I think, the third or fourth time that we've talked about the Moore case, which, I mean, it's pretty big implications potentially, but I think also we're talking about it because of these procedural quirks that are going on. So the last time that we checked in on this podcast on this case was with UCLA professor Rick Hassan, and he sort of teed up the issue here. So this is a case about, you know, what powers various parts of the state have when setting federal election laws. Is it only the legislature? Do courts and some of the executive branch have some authority uh, to weigh in there? That was what the justices heard oral arguments in in December. And then after an election in in North Carolina, where, um, you know, control of the Supreme Court switched from Democrats to Republican, just coincidentally, After that, the North Carolina Supreme Court agreed to rehear the case or some part of the case, or we don't really know what they decided to rehear. That's sort of part of these moving parts that we uh, really cause a cloud over what's going on. 
So we have had briefing, um, most of the briefing in, in the North Carolina case, they're going to be hearing it sometime soon, probably before the end of June, when we would expect to get those big cases down. And in the meantime, the Supreme Court, without notice from the parties, um, has asked uh, the parties to weigh in on whether or not the justices still have jurisdiction. And it's this really technical sort of question about whether or not, you know, it's a final rule. And there's some differences when we're dealing with with state courts versus federal courts and what the Supreme Court is reviewing. But I think one thing that we know for sure is that we're really in uncharted waters here, that this hasn't come up in this way and that the consequences are potentially major in that if this isn't an issue that the justices resolve in this case, it's not going to go away. It's not like people are going to be like, well, that was a good shot. It's time for us to, you know, move on from this so-called independent state legislature theory, it's going to come back. And the potential that it comes back in the middle of a contested election in 2024, where, you know, really the outcome hinges on whatever the Supreme Court says is, I think legal term is uh, no bueno, I think. So there are all sort of hitches like that that are coming up um, in, in the Supreme Court's cases this term. You know, what's, what I find striking about the, the North Carolina case is, you know, this is now set up as a potential off-ramp for the court. It may be one that they feel compelled to take mm-hmm. or maybe one that they choose to take because uh, they're they're finding the issue for whatever reason isn't, you know, something they want to decide right now. And meanwhile, and you had a story in which you quoted, I think, Ned Foley in, in a story um, about it. You have election law experts people from across the ideological spectrum who are basically saying to the court, you know, we really need you to decide this now, whether or not we wanted you to take it in the first place. This is an issue that is so much better decided in 2023 than in 2024 in the middle of some sort of an election fight. So uh, it'll be fascinating to see what they do with that. Yeah. And I don't know about you, but I didn't necessarily read it as they want to make sure that there's an off-ramp, but there was a sort of oddity about the whole North Carolina Supreme Court agreeing to rehear the case and that the parties never brought it up to the Supreme Court. They never was like, hey, guess what? You know, they're going to reconsider this case. And so I wonder if the Supreme Court was just sort of, this was what they could do kind of on their own was make sure that they're sort of on all fours with jurisdiction before going ahead and making what what really might be a big, a big decision. I wanted to ask you, there was an interesting tweet by James Ramoser of SCOTUS blog and then expounded upon by our friend Adam Feldman at Empirical SCOTUS about the, quote, last justice standing. That is the (laughs) justice who, after six opinions, has been fully in the majority in all six cases. And oftentimes that person is some kind of centrist justice who is just, you know, kind of driving the court. Who, Kimberly, is the surprise winner of the last justice standing competition for the 2022-23 term? Well, that would be our newest justice, um, Justice Jackson. She's been the only justice in the majority for all six cases. Um, And so she is the last justice standing without a concurring or dissenting opinion. And Feldman points out that it's pretty odd given obviously, the make of this court with 6-3 opinions. Um, But he notes, and I think, uh, you know, you and I have noted that the cases decided so far have not come down along ideological lines. There have been some pretty odd lineups. So one of the last cases we got was a tax case called Bittner, where the classic breakdown of Roberts, Alito, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Jackson were against Thomas, Sotomayor, Kagan, and Barrett, you know, something we see all the time in five to four cases. I also thought it was really interesting that Feldman tried to map out how Jackson 
matches up to other justices who are newly confirmed. And, you know, Justice Barrett is on the low end of that. She was in the majority for the first three opinions in 2020. And probably no surprise is that Kavanaugh and Roberts are pretty high up there, um, going their terms um, with 12. Um, but maybe a little bit of a surprise, Alito had 15 in 2005 before he, uh, before he, I guess, went down would be the, would be the... <laughs> The term if we have last man standing, last justice standing. Sorry. Sorry, Justice Ginsburg. <laughs> so one more thing before we get to chatting about um, our case is that I, I mentioned that the justices have a relatively full set of arguments scheduled for March and April. Specifically, they will hear 10 cases in March and nine in April. We're going to talk about one of those, as I mentioned. But that means that two-thirds of the arguments are in the last two sittings and what strikes me most about that is that that means we're going to have 157 hours of arguments to hear these 19 <laughs> cases. And you're going to uh, be something... there for all 157. <laughs> or something like that. Um, and that's due largely to the new rules that the court put in place for hearing arguments remotely during the pandemic. But Greg, it, it hasn't always been like this. Can you back us up? What happened? What did it used to be like in the good old days? <laughs> back in the old days when uh, at the end of a lawyer's allotted time in the middle of a syllable, Chief Justice Rehnquist would cut that lawyer off and end the argument because, dang it, it was a 60-minute argument. Uh, those days are long past us. You know, it's like a combination of... You know, when they started hearing these telephone arguments during the pandemic, where they decided they needed to go in order, uh, give every justice a chance because they couldn't do the free for all, given that they couldn't see one another. And some justices kind of liked that and some justices uh, didn't. And some justices missed the, the free for all nature where one could build on another's question. And so when they came back into the courtroom, they decided to do all the above. They decided to do the free-for-all and the in-order questioning. And the upshot of it is that arguments now take, um, you know, two, three times as long as they used to. I think some of the justices are not happy with how long they, they are going, mm -hmm. but uh, maybe there's a collective action problem here. They cannot collectively shorten these things to, to any significant degree. I do wonder, though, and, you know, as apart from this idea of being uncomfortable in the courtroom with no water, no food, no phone, no Apple Watch, um, <laughs> cut off from all of humanity, um, apart from that, uh, which is very personal to me, um, I do wonder if there's sort of a fairness problem here. It seems to me like, particularly when the SG's office comes in on the petitioner's side, that it's resulting in a lot more time for the petitioner and the SG and a lot less time for the respondent. And that just seems, I mean, I don't want to say no bueno again. I don't want to be too technical on this podcast, but that's what it does seem like to me. Well, I'd be interested to hear who you think it's unfair to, but um, it's certainly that's what's happening. You know, you look at the student loan cases from the last sitting and I, I didn't do the time, but I looked at the, the transcript pages and those two cases, uh, Elizabeth Prelogger, the Solicitor General, her arguments took up 132 pages and the lawyers on the other side took up 85 pages. So she had, uh, if I did my math right, 61% of the, the pages there. One question I, I you know, was left wondering in this case is, 
was that just a reflection that the court was skeptical of Elizabeth Prelogger's argument and the Biden administration's argument for for uh, you know trying to to forgive some student loans? If, is that because they had more questions for her, um, and maybe it's not a good thing that she had so much time? Yeah, that's a good point. Um, well, I guess we'll see how long these nineteen cases. Uh, that the justices are going to hear in the last two months go. Uh, should we talk about one of them with our guest, do you think? Let's do that. Uh, we promised we'd discuss a case involving Jack Daniels versus VIP products. Kimberly, why don't you give us the, the rundown on that case? Oh, that was good, Greg. The rundown. That's gross. <laughs> Kimberly, why don't you give us the, the inside poop on this story? Okay, Greg. Well, this is a trademark case involving the famous Jack Daniels Tennessee whiskey and VIP products, which sells pet toys. Specifically, VIP made and sold a Bad Spaniels chew toy, which uses a play on words to change the famous Old Number 7 Tennessee whiskey to Old Number 2 on your Tennessee carpet. Classy. Uh, So Jack Daniels says the poop-themed toy has the potential to cause confusion among consumers and further that the potty-themed jokes dilute the value of its famous trademark. The trial court initially ruled for Jack Daniels, but later sided with VIP products after the Ninth Circuit reversed and remanded with instructions to follow a Second Circuit precedent. Joining us to dissect the case is Deborah Voice and Plimpton's Megan Banigan, who's also an adjunct professor of law at both New York University and Rutgers. Megan was the lead author, along with uh, some other intellectual property professors, who filed an amicus brief in the case supporting neither party. Megan, there are two issues in this case. Can you, for those of us who are not IP specialists, can you briefly kind of explain the infringement and the dilution claims at issue in the case? Absolutely. And this is such an interesting case uh, because of these important First Amendment issues that are at play. And so, as you noted, there are two primary claims. Whether this dog toy infringes Jack Daniels' trademarks and trade dress, and whether they dilute the trademarks and trade dress. And so, let's dig into that. What is infringement? Infringement means are you using somebody else's mark? Are you using it a, a mark that's similar enough to somebody's trademark that it is potential to there's a likelihood of confusion are you going to confuse consumers that's what the Lanham Act the statute that protects trademarks that's what we're trying to avoid we want to protect consumers so they know what they're buying they know who's putting out what you're buying and we want to protect brands um, so they're not putting all of this work in and allowing someone else to just take their goodwill. And so what happened here with this Bad Spaniels dog toy is, you know, our consumers seeing Bad Spaniels and thinking that it is somehow being put out by Jack Daniels or that it's Jack Daniels making this Bad Spaniels bottle talking about the old number two or poo. Um, The second claimate issue is dilution. And dilution also involves trademarks, but it's slightly different. Jack Daniels claimed that Bad Spaniels dilutes its marks by causing consumers to associate its whiskeys with dog poo. Um, And so this is called a claim for dilution by tarnishment. And what it means is that these acts by another are going to somehow tarnish your brand, meaning lower the value of your brand or hurt your reputation somehow. So slightly different claims, but both involving these Jack Daniels trademarks that so many people know. 
So your brief focuses on that first issue, infringement. But before we talk about that, I wonder if you could tell us what the lower court said about the infringement claim. So the district court initially held that consumers are likely to be confused as to the source of the bad spaniel's dog chew toy. And they credited a survey purporting to show that 29% of the people surveyed actually identified Jack Daniels as the source of the toy. VIP Products had raised a First Amendment defense, claiming that its right to make this humorous dog toy is part of the very important freedom of speech and expression that's guaranteed by the Constitution. But the district court rejected that First Amendment defense, finding that the toy was not an expressive work because any expression that was used was used on a commercial product, a mass produced dog toy. So the district judge sided with VIP products rather ultimately, rather reluctantly, uh, suggesting that the circuit's precedent basically eviscerated the Lanham Act. Was that a legitimate concern the judge expressed? Uh, Not at all. The First Amendment is so incredibly important. The first court to really deal with this was the Second Circuit in 1989 in the Rogers v. Grimaldi case. And what the court said there was that When you have an expressive work, when you're dealing with art and this artistic freedom of expression, just looking at the Lanham Act is not enough. We know that the First Amendment right is paramount. And so we actually need a special test to ensure that we're protecting what the Lanham Act seeks to protect. And we're also protecting the First Amendment. So I don't agree that applying the First Amendment would eviscerate the Lanham Act. It's just you have to take into account and you have to make adjustments when you have these important constitutional issues at play. And what all of these tests are looking to do is make sure that brands are protected, but also make sure that artist rights are protected and and we're not censoring art or we're not censoring expression. So if I'm hearing you right, I'm hearing you say that um, there's this tension between what Congress sought to protect in the Lanham Act and then other constitutional protections, and the court here is trying to figure out a way to sort of balance the two. Is that is that right? I think that's exactly right. And there doesn't have to be a tension. What we want to protect with trademarks is the goodwill that brands have put in, the hard work. We want to incentivize them to keep doing that. And we also want to protect consumers to make sure they're not confused. But we can't do that at the expense of the First Amendment. It's, it's, you know, it is the First Amendment to our Constitution. It's this, this notion that we are allowed to say what's on our mind. We're allowed to make art about what's on our mind. And we can't censor that just because somebody has a trademark. But what we need to do is we need to find a way to balance both interests um, to make sure, this is what my brief tried to address, but to make sure that, you know, We're not allowing artists or anybody to just free ride on the backs of brands, but we're we're looking for when there's true expression, that that is what's protected. Yeah. Can you explain how your middle ground differs from each of the parties? You know, we often see the Solicitor General kind of taking that sort of middle ground here. The SG, I, I think, is pretty much on Jack Daniels' side, and there's not a whole lot of room between them. But can you just explain what it is that you're trying to do with your brief that the the two sides aren't? Yeah, absolutely. Jack Daniels is saying the Lanham Act is sufficient. We apply the likelihood of confusion factors, 
If the likelihood of confusion factors find confusion, that's trademark infringement. End of story. VIP Products is saying this Rogers v. Grimaldi case that came out in 1989, that was the right standard. Let's apply that. If applied in the right way, it is very favorable for artists or for defendants. And they're saying, you know, well, there is some artistic expression. It's not explicitly misleading. Those are the two elements of the test. Let's just go with that test. And when we filed this brief on behalf of a cohort of law professors, and we're saying that, you know, the Rogers test is important. We should preserve that, but it does need to be modified. The test is very necessary to preserve the First Amendment interests of artists because the likelihood of confusion analysis just wasn't designed to balance these expressive interests against the interests in avoiding consumer confusion. But the Rogers test does have some major flaws. The test is vague, which has led courts to apply it differently. And that leads to unpredictability for both brands and artists. And that's obviously not a good result. So the first major change that we've proposed is to create a presumption that the Lanham Act liability is precluded when a work is found to be an expressive work subject to the First Amendment. In other words, we would place a presumption that artistic works cannot be subject to trademark infringement liability unless the brand owner can show that there's a reason the standard likelihood of confusion factors should apply instead. Hmm. So the second major revision that we propose is to replace the artistic relevance prong of Rogers, which arguably calls on courts to take on the role of art critics, uh, which I don't believe was ever intended, with a clear gratuitousness prong. So rather than placing a burden on an artist to show that its use is relevant to its expression, the burden instead would be on the brand to show that the defendant's use is clearly gratuitous. What I mean by that is that they're merely free riding on the brand's goodwill. That approach would protect valuable commentary or criticism of a brand or a brand owner, for example, through parody, artistic representations of the world. At the same time, it would be weighing toward protection of the public from confusion where a defendant clearly uses a brand's trademark just to promote or sell its goods. You know, we don't want a test where anybody can take a brand's trademark, pop it on what they call art and say, oh, I can use this to sell my product. What we want to do is really cut down to the center and say, you know, where is their actual expression? Where are their messages that we're trying to send? That should be protected, but it shouldn't be a free for all that just gives anybody the right to use a brand's trademark. You mentioned um, the courts having to act as art critics. That was an issue that came up in another major IP case that the justices heard earlier this term, the Andy Warhol Foundation versus Lynn Goldsmith. That one involves copyrights. The court also has this case. And then there are, are two other IP cases that it's going to be hearing in March. Is it unusual for the justices to pay so much attention um, to this area in a single term? Or is this sort of par for the course? It's it's unusual in the sense that sometimes the Supreme Court goes many years between deciding major IP cases. Um, but you know, the, if you really look at the last few years in the Supreme Court's docket, they have seemed very eager to resolve pressing IP issues. For example, there was the Booking.com case from 2020. 
the Georgia v. Public Resource case from 2020, the Romag Fasteners case in 2020. There was an Allen v. Cooper copyright case the same year, the Google v. Oracle case in 2021. I can keep going on. And all I'll say about that is we do hope this trend continues and that the court continues to take a close look at these important IP issues going forward. Can you talk to us a little bit about the stakes of this particular case, both in terms of what, what the parties are saying about what's at stake and what you think is at stake? At stake in this case is the way that courts in the future balance First Amendment interests against trademark rights, which is an absolutely crucial question for both artists and brand owners. Although bad spaniels itself might not be the obvious vehicle for protecting First Amendment interests, the way the court decides this case is going to directly affect the scope of other artists and parodists to reference brands in their work. It's just crucially important. And on the other side, brand owners are closely watching the case, and many have filed briefs in this case. Because at stake for them is the right to prevent artists from selling expressive works that incorporate their marks in some way. These rights need to be balanced. We do need to protect brands from these clearly gratuitous use of their marks, but we obviously also need to protect an artist's right to expression. So we'll see how the court comes out. It's possible the court could decide the case on narrow grounds, or it's possible it could come up with a whole new test for the First Amendment. We'll see what happens. Well, I, for one, am looking forward to oral arguments in this case. Sometimes the justices get really excited about a topic and come up with all sorts of crazy hypos, which I could see happening here. So We're going to miss Justice Breyer. <laughs> That's true. He would have That's fun true. with us. <laughs> Although, I don't know. The bad Spaniels jokes might be a little too uh, lowbrow for Justice Breyer. We do have fun with our IP cases, and even even the Supreme Court has fun with our IP cases. They're a lot more interesting, in my view, than some of the others that, that come across the bench. Well, okay, before we start a fight among our listeners about what cases are the most interesting, uh, thank you so much for joining us, Megan. We really enjoyed uh, diving into your brief, and as you said, we'll see what happens with this one. Thank you so much. That was Megan Banigan. She's a lawyer at Deba Voice in Plimpton, also an adjunct professor at New York University and Rutgers Law Schools. Greg, I really think that the justices missed a good opportunity to talk about the mafia during that New York versus New Jersey case about the ports there. And so I'm, I'm really hoping that they make up for it in this case. There's a lot. Yeah, that was very disappointing. And that was actually an argument I was in the courtroom for. So I was I was looking forward to those, wow. the, the Sopranos references. But uh, yeah, the Jack Daniels case is absolutely a uh, potential hypothetical wonderland. So hopefully they'll take take full advantage of it. A hypothetical wonderland. Love it. We'll be back next week to preview another case being argued during the March sitting. This one, a Sixth Amendment case, Samia versus United States. Until then, you can follow along with all the latest Supreme Court news at news.bloomberglaw.com. Hello, podcast listeners. If you don't already know On the Merits, our weekly podcast devoted to legal and government news, it's a show that features the very best of Bloomberg Law and Bloomberg Government newsrooms that boast among the largest number of credentialed journalists in D.C. When you listen to On the Merits, you'll hear about the groundbreaking developments in the courts, in Congress, and in the alphabet soup of federal agencies that run Washington and our nation. Our show is by and about legal and government policy nerds, and we say that lovingly. It's 
a nerd's eye view of what professionals in the legal and government space need to know. But you do not have to be a nerd to listen. Check out our show on the merits and find new episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find our archive of shows at news.bloomberglaw.com slash podcasts. <laughs>